this once in a while. I really like reading the scripture too. <laughs> so it's kind of a treat for me. Um, I know it's a departure. Change is, is a little hard sometimes in church, but I think it's going to be okay. I think we'll be all right. So uh, we wanted to invite our children to children's church up through third grade. If you want to meet at the back, um, your teacher will meet you back there. Is that right? Yeah. Um, so let's open with a word of prayer. Lord, it is indeed tremendously good news that you met us all the way. Lord, you didn't come just halfway to meet us. You didn't do most of the work of our salvation. Lord, it's tremendous. It is incredibly good news for us that you did all of the work of our salvation so that all we do is trust. We don't have to add anything to it. When we sin, it doesn't detract from what you've done. When we're obedient, it adds nothing. All we need to do, Lord, is trust. What a glorious salvation we have. Thank you for meeting us all the way, knowing that we would never reach up to you. So, Lord, I pray now as we look at your word, as we we see what uh, Peter has done, Lord, we would remember that our salvation is rooted in you. Be with us, Holy Spirit, to help us to see and to understand what it is that you have to say to us this morning. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. So the illustration I've been using is the Holy Week where Jesus is heading to the cross is this series of events that are dominoes falling. And um, the first one was was, um, the Lord's Supper. Jesus initiated that. The second one was Gethsemane. Jesus went to Gethsemane where Judas knew he would find him. Um, And then uh, prayer in Gethsemane. And now his arrest we saw last week. And and so this is the next step in that chain. Um, It's the most tragic one, too. It's Peter's denial of Christ. Um, Often we look at Peter and we kind of think of him as a bit of a buffoon, you know, a little bit of a clown, and you know, always speaking up, always saying the wrong thing, and, and we kind of chuckle, but, you know, he am us, really. I mean, he just is so human, and, and you would never get this in any other kind of holy scripture where this great leader of the church would be so stinking human. You know, he would just be so every man. So it's, it's kind of with a heavy heart we go into his betrayal because he is representing us. He is very much like us. And so there's a little bit of pain to it. Um, One of the things about this section, though, is you'll notice we're we're heading back into just history, just narrative. Before this, we would get Jesus teaching in the middle of it or something going on like that. Now Luke is just moving us right into just narrative. And so the preaching is going to be a little different because what we have to do is just understand the story and then say, well, what does it have to do with us? How do we fit into that story, how, does that, how do we connect with it? Because it is narrative. And as we move towards the cross, it turns more into narrative and less teaching in the scripture. So Luke is doing that on purpose. The other thing I want to say before we look into this is, you remember last week, it was Jesus' betrayal, where Judas kissed him and betrayed him. And at the very end of it, Luke talks about somebody taking a sword and chopping off a servant's ear, and we knew it was Peter. But what I want to do is, is this morning is say, Luke left out Peter's name on purpose. He said, one of them chopped off his ear. And what I think Luke is doing is he's trying to draw our attention not to the fact that 
Oh, you just attacked the priest's servant, and now you're going to sit in his courtyard? Who do you think you are? I think he left that out so that he would lead us to this point to focus more on Peter and what he's doing and not, not the peril that he's at right there by threatening the, the, um, the high priest's servant. So what I want to do this morning is I just want to go through this story, unpack it a little bit, work through it a little bit, and then the second part of the sermon will actually be applying what we've just seen happen. So it's going to be a little different, okay? So I'm just using a little bit of holy imagination, not too much here. But this is how I picture this happening. So it starts out with they seized him and they led him away. Jesus has just been in the garden. He's just told his disciples, rise up and pray that you won't enter into temptation. And then the crowd comes and they're betrayed. And one of the disciples is, is ready for military action, right? This is, this is a, a, a time for our Messiah to rise up and be king. So we're going to take a sword and we're going to take some military action here. And Jesus says, put that away. This is not the time. And so the crowd that arrest Jesus, they begin to lead him away. And it says that they seized him and they led him away to the high priest's house. And Peter followed at a distance. Now, they've got torches because it's nighttime. It's dark. So they can see where they're going. Peter follows at a distance far enough away so that the light won't shine on him. They won't see him there. And he can just kind of follow the direction they're going. That way he won't fall off a cliff or something terrible like that. But Peter is following. Something is drawing him along. The other disciples have all scattered. As soon as this, this thing happened, they all ran in a different direction. But Peter is following the Lord. And, and perhaps what's ringing in his ears is when he said, Jesus, I will, I will go to prison and to death with you. Maybe that's still weighing on him. And he's thinking, well, I better go along and figure out what's happening. So as he goes, they take Jesus into Caiaphas. That's the high priest's house. And in the middle of the courtyard, they build a fire because it's nighttime, it's cold, it's getting chilly. And so Peter inches in and he can see what's going on, but it's cold, so he draws close to the fire and he sits down. Now, what is going through Peter's mind at this time? Can you imagine what he's thinking? He's still imagining the Messiah is going to be the one who goes on the throne. He's going to be this great leader, and he's going to march into Jerusalem, and he's going to vanquish our enemies, and, and Psalm 2 must be ringing through his mind. He will rule the nations with a rod of iron. This, is, this has got to be what's going on, and yet they just arrested him. What on earth is happening? I didn't anticipate this. I thought we were going to go in and set up thrones, and everything was going to be great. I thought this was the new kingdom but they've arrested Jesus. Did I get something wrong here? What am I, what, how am I supposed to process it? I don't understand how Jesus could be arrested. He was supposed to be the ruler, and now he's submitting to the high priest like this? I, I must have I, I misunderstood something. Maybe Jesus isn't the Messiah. Maybe he's just like John the Baptist. He's pointing to the Messiah. He's preparing his form. Maybe that's what's going on. And so Peter is wrestling with this new information, trying to process all of this new thing for him, even though Jesus has told him repeatedly, look, I'm going to Jerusalem, I'm going to die. Peter has been reinterpreting that in light of the theology he's already got, which is a theology of triumph. So he's, he's at a very weak moment here, spiritually. His faith is, at, is being tested in a, in a really profound way. And he's really wrestling with it, and right in the middle of that, a servant girl pokes a finger at him and says, this man also was with him. Now, if this had happened a week ago, Peter probably would have stood up and said, you're darn right I am. No kidding, I'm with him. 
But right now, his faith is tested. It is, it is drawn to it, its thinnest point. And so when he's tested like this, his response is, I don't know him. I, I, I haven't made up my mind yet. I haven't quite landed on this yet. I don't know him. I'm, I'm not one of them. I may not be. I don't know yet. So he's still struggling with this, and his, his faith is so weak that he denies him. And a little later, someone else said, no, you are. You're with him. And he says, man, I, I don't know him. I, I really, I, I'm, I can't figure this out. And so now he's, he's sitting, he's thinking, okay, well, maybe Jesus was just this great prophet because I've seen him do incredible things. I, I watched him heal people who had crumpled hands and, and leprosy. And, and I, he gave me authority. I cast out demons in his name. There, he's got to be more than just a false messiah. There's got to be more to him than that. Maybe, maybe he's a prophet. And, and we're still waiting for the Messiah. We're still looking forward to the Messiah. Maybe he's pointing us to that. Maybe he's preparing for the Messiah. But he shouldn't be executed. Why is this happening? If the Messiah's kingdom is coming, surely Jesus should be part of that kingdom. Maybe that's what's going on. I still can't figure it out. I, I don't understand what's happening. And then finally, about an hour later, so he's sitting there stewing in his unbelief, his, his doubt, his questioning. He's sitting and stewing in it for an hour. And finally, a man comes up and says, no, you're one of them. I can tell because you have a Galilean accent. You must be one of them. Now, folks in Galilee did have a different accent. They did speak differently. And part of the reason is geographical, because if you remember what Israel looked like, the southern portion is where Jerusalem was, and that was kind of where all of, of uh, Judea was. That's, that's where the Jewish capital and everything was happening. Just north of that is Samaria. And Samaria is this mixed breeds between Jews and Gentiles, mixed religion between Jews and pagans. It's the people that the Jews really don't want to be around. They're so compromised. So they, they're bringing in different languages, different ways of belief. And then at the very top, there's this strip called Galilee. And that's where the Jews are again. These are Jewish people once more, but they're geographically separated from their brothers. And so they do a lot of trading with the Gentiles. They began to pick up Gentile language patterns. And so they would drag, actually drop sounds out of their language. So that's how they knew this is a, this is a guy from Galilee. And, and the same thing happens here. If somebody from Louisiana came up to you and started talking, you'd recognize them. They're from the South. You know, that, that's no question about that. I spent two years in North Carolina. If somebody came up to me who had grown up in North Carolina, I would be able to tell them they're North Carolinian because they're from Nelf Carolina. That's how they say it. It's different. So this man looks at, at, at Peter and says, no, you're a Galilean. You've got to be one of them. Why would you be here right now? And Peter, again, because he's still wrestling through this, denies that he knows him. And as the words are tumbling out of his mouth, a rooster crows. And I can just imagine Peter biting off those words going, I did it. I, I did exactly what he said. And he looks up, and Jesus is there, is there in, the, in the house, and Jesus looked over at him and made eye contact. And what was communicated between those two in that moment must have been huge. It could have been any number of things. Peter, I know. Peter, I told you. 
Don't forget the, the whole equation, though. I said, you're going to deny me three times, but when you're restored, don't forget that, Peter. And Peter goes out, and he wept bitterly. That word for bitterly, it, it originally was sharp, pointy, like an arrow or a dart. But it soon evolved into this, this idea of this bitterness, this sorrow, but it's painful. Peter is not just going, oh, man, I messed up. He is probably doubled over he is crying so hard because he recognizes what he's done. He's weeping in bitter, bitter tears. So that's the story. That's what happened. What does it mean for us? What do we do with this? Well, remember last week we were talking about betrayal. And, and what I said last week was Jesus in his entering into our, our, be our savior, he didn't just have uh, problems at an arm's length. He entered into, even betrayal was, was kiss on the cheek, that intimate, that close. And then I talked about what happens when we betray somebody or when we're betrayed. Well, it's a similar thing here is we look at Peter and Luke intentionally gives us no discussion on this. He doesn't put any words around this. He doesn't interpret it for us. He doesn't explain it. He simply recounts the story. And this is what the, the gospel writers do is they tell, this is the story they tell about this great church leader in the first century is he denied his savior not once, not twice, but three times. So when Luke tells us this, he's, he's wanting us to focus on this, this notion that he betrayed, he denied Jesus, he turned away from him. And I think what he's doing here is he's not speaking this into zero context. Luke is, is actually speaking about this in a context within the first century that other Christians that he's writing to, people he expects to understand this, Theophilus and those who else who read the letter, he thinks they will get this. So what I believe he's doing is he's showing what it looks like to have godly grief. And, and so here's where I get that term. If you turn with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 7. 2 Corinthians 7 is... Um, the Corinthian epistles are a little hard to work through because um, there are missing letters back and forth. Uh, we only get Paul's epistles. We don't get the Corinthian epistles. And then we don't get all of Paul's epistles. So they're writing these letters back and forth, and we get two of them. Um, and so it's a little confusing. What's going on in chapter 7 is Paul tells the Corinthians, look, I wrote to you a very stern letter. And, and I've been just anxious to hear how you've responded. And he's not here talking about 1 Corinthians. He's talking about a letter we don't have. Um, so if you start in verse 8, here's how he, he explains it. Verse 8 says, For even if I made you grieve with my letter, I do not regret it, though I did regret it. For I see that that letter grieved you, though only for a while. As it is, I rejoice, not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting, for you felt a godly grief, so that you suffered no loss through us. For godly grief produces repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. For see what earnestness this godly grief has produced in you, but also what earnestness to clear yourselves, what indignation, what fear, what longing, what zeal, what punishment. At every point, you have proved yourself innocent in this matter. 
So what he's saying here is Paul said, you had done something, Corinthians, and I wrote you a sharp letter to rebuke you for it. And as soon as I sent it, I regretted it. I thought, oh my goodness, did I go too far? Did I, did I push too hard on this? Am I going to lose this church? Are they going to turn away from me and count me as an enemy? How can I continue to have ministry with them if they don't receive this? And so he says, I regretted it for a while. And so he's been waiting to hear, how did the Corinthians receive that? And when he gets word back, he finds out this great news. The letter was exactly what they needed. It produced in them grief. It produced in them godly grief. In other words, it produced in them a godly grief that led them to repent. And that was exactly what Paul was hoping for. That's exactly what he was looking for. And so what Peter is doing in this epistle is he is expressing godly grief. He has just sinned. Big, bold letters, he sinned. And now he goes out and he weeps. So Peter's response to this is not what Paul will introduce us to as worldly grief, but it is godly grief. And so let's take a, what does Paul mean by godly grief? Because I think that's the application of Peter's denial. Is, um, first of all, godly grief will produce repentance. It will lead you from where you were in sin to repentance. And by repentance, I don't mean going, yeah, I did it, sorry. Repentance is this change of heart, this turn in a different direction. Godly grief will take you to the point where you go, oh my gosh, I did that. I hate that. That is the most disgusting thing I could have done. How could I do something like that? And so godly grief takes you, it doesn't make it any easier. It's still painful, but it takes you to the point where you go, I've done that thing. I hate that thing. I am never going back in that direction again because it was so horrible. So godly grief produces, first of all, repentance. That's verse 9. Um, For you felt a godly grief so that you suffered, um, uh, so that you suffer no loss. So this, this godly grief will produce repentance so that you won't suffer loss. The second thing that godly grief does is it leads us back to Jesus. So Peter doesn't flee from Jesus at this point. He doesn't turn away from him and go, I sinned, I better stay away from him. Do you remember what happened in, in the Gospel of John when Jesus appears at the side of the, the uh, lake? The, the apostles are out fishing. And Jesus on the shore builds a nice little fire and he starts roasting a fish. And the, the, the disciples go, hey, who is that on the shore? And Peter goes, it's Jesus. And like an idiot, he wraps his cloak around him so he's sure to drown and jumps in the lake and swims as hard as he can for the shore. That's godly grief. That's godly grief that says, Lord, I have sinned mightily against you and I'm running right at you because I've done that. I, I, it doesn't lead you to, to shy away from God and go, oh, well, you know, wait till he gets over it. It leads you to rush right towards Jesus. Um, this book that I'm reading, uh, Imperfect Pastor, no, it's not my autobiography, um, but the, the uh, man who wrote it is Zach Eswine. Okay, it is my autobiography. Um, Zach said, the person knows that ultimately it is God he has sinned against and God for whom he comes home. So that's where Peter is. He he understands it is God who I've sinned against and it is God to whom I must flee. So that's what godly repentance does is it takes us straight back to Jesus. How do you respond when you sin? 
Do you kind of hide it? I, I can't read my Bible right now. I'm still a little bit upset about the sin. It, it should lead you to rush right to Jesus and go and acknowledge, Lord, I have done this, and I, I hate it, and I'm sorry. And would you forgive me? Would you empower me to not do that again? That's godly grief. It still hurts. It's not a comfortable feeling, but it leads us back to Jesus. And then the last point is it sends away regret. Verse 10, for godly grief produces repentance that leads to salvation without regret. Why would it lead to repentance and salvation without regret? Because you've run to Jesus and you say, my sin is atoned for. It was wrong. I shouldn't have done it, but I don't need to fester. I don't need to sit on it and keep looking over it. It has been decisively dealt with in Jesus Christ. He has removed my sin. That's why you have salvation without regret. You don't say, well, I'm saved, but boy, all the terrible things I've done in my life, and just keep rehashing them and rehashing them and rehashing them. That is what is called godly grief. Paul also mentions that there is such a thing as worldly grief. And worldly grief leads to death. Wouldn't it be nice if we could say there's grief and then the opposite is just so easy to identify because it's nothing like it. When the truth is there's grief and there's grief. And one leads to life and one leads to death. Um, it, it, it would just be so much easier if what was produced in us when we're sinning was not godly grief. Uh, John Piper, when he was talking about this, he said, notice in verse 10 that the opposite of godly grief is not no grief. It's worldly grief. So then what does worldly grief look like? Worldly grief is I've been caught in my sin. Not I have sinned. It's I have been caught in my sin. Uh-oh. People are going to find out. So the first thing is blame shifting. That wasn't my fault. It was this, it was that. Well, they started it. Um, well, I didn't do that. Um, S. Wine, in his book, um, was talking about a man who was caught in adultery. And so they went to him and they, they said, you can't do this. And he said, well, I'm not legally married. I'm not married in the eyes of the Lord. And went, wait, what? <laughs> You're fooling around on your wife. And he said, well, I wasn't married in the church, so God doesn't count it so I can do whatever I want. That's blame shifting. And in this case, I shifted the blame right to God. <laughs> That's the first evidence of worldly grief is I'm going to blame somebody else. I'm going to find some way to get out from underneath the burden of this. The second thing is hiding. I, I did this sin. I know I sinned. I just won't mention it to anybody. I'll just sit on it. It, it, it turns it. When I was a kid, I got a, a splinter in my thumb. And there's still a scar there. It, my, I couldn't get it out. It was right dead center of my thumb, and my thumb swelled up and got really hard and hot until that thing finally was pushed out. That's what that hiding that sin is like. It's not meant to be there, and it's going to fester, and it's going to get infected, and it's going to continue to grow. So worldly grief produces hiding. Instead of getting the, the splinter out, what you do is just you know, keep your hand in your pocket. You hide what your sin was. You feel bad about it. It was the wrong thing to do, but I don't want to be found out. And it's grief that other people know. Or it's grief that now somebody else knows, but it's never grief, I have sinned against a holy God. 
it's first and foremost, my friends are going to understand. My friends are going to know that I did this. My family's going to find out. It is not first and foremost, God, I have sinned before you and you alone. And that's exactly what uh, David said in his psalm when he repented. After he, he had slept with Bathsheba, killed Uriah, he writes a psalm and he says, Lord, against you and you only have I sinned. Really? What about Uriah? First and foremost, my sin is against God. Worldly grief will not produce that effect in you. It will not lead you to say, Lord, I have sinned against you, and I am sorry, and start at the top. Instead, it is, my friend, I sinned against you when I, I told a lie and made you look foolish. I, I made a joke about you. I, I stole something from you. Whatever it is, it, it looks first and foremost, now I'm going to look bad. Godly grief is recognizing that, that it's God. So that's, that's the two paths. There's a, there's a road, and in front of you is a, a road that goes to the left and a road that goes to the right, and both of them have the road sign that says grief. One of them leads to death, one of them leads to life. So here's the question. How do I get on the right path? The, the natural inclination of our hearts is cover, duck and cover, hide, blame shift. It's not me, it's her. Something like that. That sounds like the Garden of Eden, doesn't it? Lord, the woman you gave me, she ate, and so I ate, and so it's your fault, really. So how do we get that, that ping, that, that tap on the shoulder that says, head for godly grief, avoid worldly grief? Well, actually, how did Peter get it? He had two things going for him in that courtyard. The first one was a rooster. And the second one was Jesus' gaze. So those two things are exactly are, are available to us when we sin and we want to head toward godly grief. The rooster and, and Jesus' gaze. Really? When was the last time you heard a rooster when you sinned? <laughs> Here's what I mean by that. What did the rooster signify? We're not going to get a rooster, okay? Maybe you will, but you probably won't. Because Peter had Jesus looking right in the face and say, you're going to sin like this, and this is the indication that you've done it. The rooster's going to crow. We don't get that. But we do get something. Jesus does offer us something. What happened when Jesus told Peter that the rooster would crow after he had denied him three times, not a handful of times, but specifically, you're going to deny me three times, and then the rooster's going to crow. And all, all of the gospels say that's exactly what happened. That was prophecy. That was Jesus prophesying what Peter would do. So when Jesus was prophesying, he was prophesying in the power of the Spirit. Isn't that right? He, he, uh, in verse, uh, chapter 4, verse 14, after his temptation, he returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit. And that's how he ministered. So what the rooster signifies is not that the rooster is going to crow. It's the power of the Spirit. For Peter, it looked like a rooster. What's it look like for us? Well, for us, remember what Jesus is up to. What's he doing as he's heading toward the cross? He initiated at the Lord's Supper. He said, this cup is the covenant in my blood. He's heading for the new covenant. He's going to initiate the new covenant for us. And that new covenant is the spirit poured out on all his people. So it's the same thing. The, spirit, the, way, it spoke, the way the spirit spoke to Peter at this point was through a rooster. The way he speaks to us 
is much more intimate because we all have the spirit. So when we're heading towards sin, the spirit will tap you on the shoulder. He'll remind you, this is wrong. And he'll remind you of that because, first of all, he circumcised your heart. He's changed it from a heart of stone to a heart of flesh. And second of all, he's brought his word to bear on you. So the scriptures, you know from the scriptures, this is wrong. So the first thing is, as, as you begin to enter into that place of sin, the rooster crows. The Holy Spirit says something to you, taps you on the shoulder, twings your, your um, conscience, and you go, wait a minute, this is wrong. Now, what you do at that point could be, I'm just going to ignore him. And that's what the New Testament refers to as grieving the Holy Spirit. It is his desire you not do that. And if you continue to grieve the Holy Spirit, you begin to develop a callus on that spot of your heart where the Holy Spirit may, may bother you about it, but you've now tuned him out so many times there's a big, thick, iron-cast callus over it so you won't feel it anymore. You've, you've gotten so used to hearing that and ignoring it. But the first thing is the rooster crows. The Spirit pings you. The, he reminds you of what the scriptures say. He reminds you of what it means to follow Christ. So he'll do that. That is the Spirit's role in your life. He's part of your sanctification is to draw you closer to Christ. He's going to remind you. So you have a rooster. And the second thing is Jesus' gaze. As Peter did what he said, he, what he promised he wouldn't do, as he did it, he looked over and met eyes with Jesus and reminded everything that Jesus had promised him, everything Jesus had said. In that moment, he gets Jesus' gaze. Well, Jesus has bodily risen into heaven. He is at the right hand of the Father physically, and he's not here to look at you. So how are we going to get Jesus' gaze when we're heading towards, unworldly, or towards worldly repentance, towards sin that way? Well, what has he left here? He left his body, the church. And didn't Paul say, look, the body's got different parts, and some of them are eyeballs. So Jesus can look at you. He can remind you of what he said, what he's promised, in and through the church. That's why it's important to be part of a church body. That's why it's important for us to make disciples. We work together to increase our sanctification, to help us avoid sin and head towards the path of godly repentance. So Jesus has left his body on earth. So you do get the gaze of Christ in the church reminding you of how you behave, how to, how to seek after Christ in these things, how to repent of sin and head toward righteousness. Now at this point, I think it's really important to be careful on this because everybody's going to say, I'm an eyeball. Is anybody going to say, hey, I'm a spleen in the church? No, man, I'm an eyeball and a hand. I'm a fist for the Lord, and I'm coming for you. S. Wine, in his book, made, at this point, as he's talking through this, makes a really great point. Um, he's looking at Paul's instructions on how to correct a sinner in Galatians 6. And what he says is, Paul clarifies that entering the mess of a caught sinner's recovery is off limits to most, most of us. Entering into a sinner's recovery is off limits to most of us. It's like, wait, what? <laughs> I thought we were supposed to do this. He goes on to explain, he says, many people take it upon themselves and believe it is their role in business to confront whatever they see and whomever they see it. So I'm just going to walk around the church and tell you all your sins. Aren't I great? He says, there's a qualification for that. 
Paul says otherwise. Only those who are spiritual should restore him. That's right at the beginning of Galatians chapter 6. So who is supposed to correct a sinner in the body of Christ? He who is spiritual. What on earth does that mean? I'm physical. I'm not spiritual. What, what is he talking about? S. Wine goes on. He says, you got an answer. Right before that, at the end of Galatians chapter 5, Paul talks about what it means to be spiritual. He says, here's the fruit of the spirit. This is the kind of person who should engage a sinful brother. This is the kind of person who should engage with somebody, somebody who has these evidences of the spirit in their life. And the way that Jesus explains it is you start at that, small, that lowest level. So it is not, hey, by the way, I saw so-and-so sinning, and, and let me announce it from the pulpit this morning. It's go to the person if you're spiritual and correct them. In, engage other people who are spiritual, who you see the fruits of the spirit engaging or growing in them, ha have them engage that person. And this is how we lead each other to godly repentance. Because if we don't do that, if we do it in, in the power of our own strength, what we'll make repentance into is a horrible thing. It will be terrifying because I'm going to be judged. I'm going to hear about this for the rest of my stinking life. Whereas a spiritual person will say this, this, and this. Watch the person change and go, I'm done. God has done his work in you. Praise God. Let's go worship together. No regret. Remember, he said that godly, godly, uh, regret, or godly grief leads to no regret. So that's how we have to handle this. It's really important that we do this carefully because we want to encourage each other to get to the point where Peter is. When we've sinned, we have a strong reaction against it. We weep bitterly, but not because we've been found out. We weep bitterly because I have offended a holy God, a God who loved me so much he sent his only son to die in my place, and I have offended this God. How could I do something like that? Godly grief then takes you to the next step where you flee to that God and say, I've, I've offended you and I am sorry. Please forgive me. And you find your forgiveness in Christ. And then you have salvation without regret. You don't go the rest of your life thinking, you know that sin I did when I was eight? Man, I just, I can't get over that. You know why you can't get over it? Because it's about you. I don't have the power to get over it. Jesus is, is looking at you as he's being mocked, as he's being arrested, in order to take your sins upon himself. And he goes, I dealt with that. Drop it. I've taken care of it. Forget about it. I'm offering you salvation without regret. Accept it. So that's what's happening with Peter. Poor Peter. Did you notice that Jesus made two predictions in that night? He said, Peter, you're going to die on me three times. Before the rooster crows, you're going to die on me three times. What was the other prediction he made that night? Somebody's going to betray me. Their hand is at the table with me even now. And it would be better if that person had never been born. Peter is offered godly regret. Deep, painful, sorrowful regret that leads to salvation, that leads out of that pit. Judas 
would only go the way of worldly regret. I got caught. I don't want to do this anymore. Take the money back. No repentance, no change of heart. And where does he wind up? There's a stark difference between the two. And that's what we have to keep in mind when we sin and how we react. Jesus has made a way for us. So I changed my mind. I'm going to include that last little bit after all. This is where Peter is now. Peter goes out into the night and weeps bitterly. I picture him bent in half, weeping so hard, the ground beneath him is wet. Snot is running out of his nose because he's crying so hard that the tears flow through him, and he is just so sorry for what happened. That explains his joy when he sees the risen Christ, why he would run to the tomb. But here's what he's facing, because Luke kind of backs up a little bit for us. In verse 63, he says, Now the men who were holding Jesus in custody were mocking him as they beat him. They also blindfolded him and kept asking, or kept asking him, Prophesy, who struck you? And they said many other things against him, blaspheming him. So this didn't happen after Peter left. This is what they've been doing to Jesus since he got here. So when Peter looks up and sees Jesus, he doesn't see Jesus standing there pristine. What he sees is a man being abused, rejected, taunted, and Jesus standing there like a lamb, silent before the shears, just quiet. And so he meets his eyes. What Peter has also on top of his own doubts is if I side with Jesus, that's what I get. That's where it goes, is I wind up being mocked and beaten and, 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 and hated. And you know what? It's exactly what happened to Peter. After he was restored, after he restored his brothers, after he goes back and he winds up preaching the gospel, they arrest him in the temple and say, hey, you can't talk in his name. Stop it. He says, I can't not. And so they beat him. And so they arrest him. They throw him in jail. Peter goes traveling throughout the rest of the world. Eventually, if tradition is right, was crucified upside down for what he did. How on earth can anybody embrace that? Why on earth would I take that route? Well, one of the things is, I don't think Peter did all of that with a big smile on his face going, yay. I don't think that was what that was about. The, the reason that we can follow our master into this kind of abuse, into this kind of scorn, is because our master did it before us. He's the pioneer. He went before us, and he didn't enjoy it. But he had his eyes on something bigger. Uh, this is the path I have to walk. What's on the other end of this is glorious. So that's what Hebrews 12 says. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin that clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that's set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him, for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. That's the power to face that kind of scorn. When your faith is that paper thin and shaky, that if somebody pokes a finger in your face and says, you're one of them, the power, the strength to get through it is, I, I know what's coming, it's not going to be good, but the glory, the joy that is set before me, 
I can endure this, this scorn. So that's how Peter can get to where we see Peter in the book of Acts. The joy that was set before him. This is not a losing proposition. The worst they can do is take your life. That's it. They can't take the joy that's set before you. They can't deny you the salvation you have in Christ. The worst that they can do is take your life. And all that does is usher you into the presence of your Savior at the right hand of the throne of glory for the joy set before you. So that's how we resist sin. That's how we head to the path of grief that is godly, grief that leads to repentance, grief that leads to salvation with no regrets, is remember the joy that is set before us and head down that path. Let's pray. Lord, we confess that we are weak, that our faith is probably even thinner than Peter's because he went and he walked with you and lived with you and ate with you and slept in the same place as you and he watched you perform miracles. And Lord, though we have not seen you, we love you. So perhaps our faith is even more tenuous. But Lord, we know that we have the spirit and the faith that we have need be no bigger than a mustard seed because it's your work that has been done on our behalf. And all we do is trust and hold on, believe that you are sufficient for us. So Lord, as many of us face trials in the coming years, uh, Christianity is becoming less and less popular in the West. Um, Lord, would you give us the strength to stand for truth to remember our Savior. And when the finger is pointed at us in accusation saying, you're one of them, Lord, would you give us the faith to say, yes, I am. And Lord, if we don't, would you give us the faith to say, I will never do that again. The taste was too bitter, the cost too high. Lord, help us to follow our Savior through trials and tribulations because of the joy set before us. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. Well, Pastor Tim, thank you. Um, you asked if we would follow um, this message with this particular John Newton lyric, which is so honest and personal and true and a great thing to sing after we've heard that message. So if you're able to stand, uh, would you join us in doing that? I asked you, Lord, to help me grow in faith and love and every grace that I would your salvation know and seek more earnestly your face. You taught me, Lord, the way to pray. And God, I know you answer prayer, but it has been in such a way that almost drove me to despair. Oh, take these inward trials I face and use them, Lord, to set me free. Remove the world and in its place cause me to cling to Calvary. 
Help me to know that you allow these trials I go through. So I will seek my all in you. I hoped that in some favored hour at once you'd answer my request and by your love's constraining power remove my sin and grant me rest instead of this you made me dwell on all the evils of my heart and let the angry powers of hell attack my soul in every part Oh, take these inward trials I face and use them, Lord, to set me free. Remove the world and in its place cause me to cling to Calvary. Help me to know that you allow these trials.